0: Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 49. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke 23, verses 44 to 49 on page 831. So turn there, and we will work through what is admittedly one of the less pleasant, one of the the more difficult uh, passages in the entire in the entire Bible. I, the Bible's a great book. I would commend it to you. If you haven't read the Bible, then I would encourage you to read it in its entirety. It's awesome. It's life-giving. It's, it's encouraging. A lot of the time after you read the Bible, you leave feeling uplifted and happy and, and encouraged. Sometimes, there are some portions of the Bible that uh, are sad and not happy. They're not uh, light, but they're, they're heavy, and they're, they're dark, and they're ominous. They're unsettling. After you read them, you don't leave feeling happy. You leave feeling ill. There's passages in the Bible where God instructs his people to kill their own children to, to wipe out entire civilizations of, of people, men, women, children, animals, property. There's, you know, passages where God Himself actually uh, judges and kills people, fire from heaven, a, a, world, a worldwide flood that destroys every single uh, person on the planet, minus, minus a handful. So there's a lot of passages in the Bible that are dark and ominous and unpleasant and unsettling and scary. And this is one of them, probably chief among them, is the the passage of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The brutal, violent, terrible death of the Son of God, the second person of the, the Trinity at the hand of his own Father, slaughtered as a sacrifice for sin to satisfy the righteous wrath of, of God. This is one of the darkest and most difficult passages in all of the Bible. It's also the high point of the entire Bible. The crux, the, the the hinge on which the entire Bible turns this passage, everything in the Bible that comes before this passage leads up to it, it anticipates it, it talks about it, it thinks about it, it's, it's, it's you know uh, looking ahead to it, and everything from this point afterward in the Bible looks back on it, reflects back on it. The Old Testament is full of Prophecies and prefigurings and pictures and types of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior for his people dying on the cross. The, the priesthood, the 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 you know the kings, the prophets—they all look forward to Jesus. Uh, you know, God, God's people being redeemed from slavery in uh, Egypt and kind of coming out, and then the the institutes of the Passover and the the Levitical system and all, those things all point forward to Jesus. Everything after Jesus looks back. The Book of Acts, the the people of God are proclaiming. Jesus and his death on the cross. The the letters from Paul and Timothy and, and Peter from Paul and Peter and others are are, you know, explaining how Jesus died on the cross to satisfy uh, the, the Father and to, uh, to save us from our sins. The book of Revelation is Jesus coming back and he's specifically described upon his return as as kind of bearing the wounds from uh, this moment the wounds on his body from this moment right here when he was crucified uh, as a sacrifice for sin. So this is one of the darkest and most ominous passages in the entire Bible, and it is the uh, the, the high point, it's the, the climax of the entire Bible. In the last, last few weeks, we've looked at the the cross of Jesus the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross from a few different angles we looked at the the physical suffering that was uh, endured by Jesus on the cross the scourging the the beating concussions contusions lacerations shock trauma dehydration you know looked at we looked at the the physical suffering that Jesus endured we looked at the um the the emotional and and Social and relational suffering that Jesus endured when his his uh, trusted friend and ally betrayed him, his best friends abandon him and deny him. everyone is there looking, laughing, pointing, taunting, mocking. no one is standing up for him, no one is coming to his defense so we 've looked at the physical we 've looked at the, the the relational and the emotional, but this passage gives us insight into. Something deeper than that into the, this passage uh, helps us to kind of peer beneath the surface of what Jesus experienced uh, into the the spiritual suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. This, it gives us insight into what actually took place, the transaction that took place between God the Father and God the Son when Jesus was on the cross, the, the payment for sin, the satisfaction of wrath. uh, It's what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means penalty. Substitutionary means substitute in place of and and atonement means to to satisfy or to atone for or to to make right, to to, to reconcile two parties together that were previously uh, at at enmity with one another. So we're going to look at Christ's death on the cross at the hand of his Father. We're going to consider it and meditate on it together. It reads, It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is a difficult text. It's a dark text. Passages like these are easy to skip over in favor of other texts that are uh, more uplifting and, and happier in, in tone, and yet, Lord, passages like this are exactly what our hearts need. We need to stare at passages like this. We need to meditate on passages like this. We need to be, we need to have a sober mind because of reflection on passages like this. So Jesus, we ask you to take these next few minutes and and work in our hearts, convict us of sin, encourage us through the sufficiency of your death in our place. We pray your blessing on us as we listen to your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So it says it was now about the sixth hour. That's noon, middle of the day. That's how they mark time in the Bible, 12 hours in a day. Um, In the, you know, the summers, and it was like, they didn't, uh, the, sun, sun, the sun always rose at the first hour, and it always set at the 12th hour, more or less. And so when the days were shorter or longer, the hours were kind of compressed a little bit or expanded a little bit. But, you know, like the parable of the, uh, the, the, vine- the labors in the vineyard, it says that the, very early in the morning, the master goes out, it's probably 5, 6 a.m. It says that the third hour, he goes out again, that's 9 a.m. The fifth or The sixth hour, that's noon. The ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., and then finally at the 11th hour, he's kind of inviting workers in. So that's kind of, and 11th hour would be 5 p.m. The 12th hour would probably be around 6 p.m. And so, it says, uh, it was now about the 6th hour. Luke is saying it was noon. No matter what time of day it was, the 6th hour was always noon, right? It kind of, the, the, that was the, the always, that was kind of the, the anchor. So he's saying it was noon. The sun was at its highest point. The sun was the brightest in the sky. Jesus, by this point, according to mark fifteen twenty five Jesus by this point, has already been on the cross for three hours. He was crucified at the third hour, which is nine a m and now it's the sixth hour, which is noon, so everything that we've seen up until this point happened in the three hours. happened between 9 a.m. and noon, basically, right? Jesus uh, on the cross, taunting, jeering, mocking from the crowds, the the conversation between the criminals that were crucified beside him, the the guards uh, casting lots for and gambling for his clothing. That all happens from 9 a.m. until noon, and now it's noon. And at noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Douglas Webster Writes that at the at the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. Not entirely sure exactly what happened here. Um, probably probably wasn't a solar eclipse because. Um, This happened at Passover. Passover always happened during a full moon. And so um, I learned this this week because I'm not an astrologer or strong. But um, the. Um, the the moon, so like, yeah, the way the moon is positioned around the earth, a solar eclipse can't happen when there's a full moon. And so this was full moon, so this probably wasn't a standard solar eclipse like you might uh, see, but it's probably something else, some sort of supernatural intervention from God, literally causing the sun to go dark for three hours in the middle of the day. And it was done to signify... The darkness and the, un, the unspeakable, unviewableness of what Jesus was experiencing in this moment. All throughout the Bible, the God and the presence of God are described as, as light and, and brightness and gl- brilliant glory. The first thing God says in the very first verse of the Bible is let there be light. And then he sees the light and says the light is good. Light is good. Light is God. God is good. Psalm 18, God is the light for my lamp. 1st Peter 2, God has called us out of darkness into light. 1st John 1, God is light. There is no darkness in God. When Revelation describes the eternal state, it says that the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God will give it light. The God himself is its lamp. The lamb is the lamp that will brighten and light and lighten the, the eternal state in, in heaven. So all throughout the Bible, God is light. All throughout the Bible, darkness is seen as a metaphor for being separated from God, the judgment of God. Jesus, multiple times, describes hell as the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Light is in the presence of God. Darkness is what happens when you're cast out of God's presence, out into suffering and punishment and judgment. And it was that, John Stott says, it was, it was that darkness, it was that outer darkness... Where the Son of God was plunged for us. Our sins blotted out the sunshine of the Father's face. We may even dare say that our sins sent Christ to hell. Not the the actual hell, meaning the the, the abode of the dead, Hades, but, but the hell of punishment to which our sins condemned him while he was on the cross. The sky goes dark to symbolize the pitch black darkness of the judgment and wrath of God that Jesus endured for us in our place. Think for a moment, imagine for a moment about the righteous indignation that you feel against the worst sin that you can imagine. Think for a moment about the, the anger that swells up inside of you when you think of someone hurting someone that you love. Imagine how you'd feel if someone abused or molested your spouse or child or elderly parent or loved one with a disability. Imagine how you'd feel, imagine how angry you would be, imagine how you'd feel if you look at that person and they're laughing about it and celebrating. Imagine how you'd want to respond if you had the chance to give that person what they deserve. God feels that same way about sin and sinners, but infinitely more God sin is infinitely more upsetting and grotesque and, and uh, wrath inciting to God than child abuse is to you. Sin is infinitely more upsetting to God than racism or abortion or rape or murder is to you. God is far more offended by sin than you are offended even by the worst sins that you can imagine done to the people that you love the most and that are the the least able to defend themselves. Sin is infuriating to God and he is angry at it. He is Furious at it, he stands ready to destroy sin and sinners. And the Bible says that all of that anger, all of that fury, all of that righteous indignation that God has against sin, it all gets gets stored up in a cup. God's cup of wrath. Psalm 75, God says, At the appointed time I will judge with equity the boastful, the wicked, all of the inhabitants of the world. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, And he pours it out, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Ezekiel 23, the cup of the Lord is deep and large. It's a cup of horror and of desolation. And you shall drink it and drain it out. Revelation 14, anyone who does not trust in Christ, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be punished with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and their smoke will go up forever and ever. The Bible says that God's wrath against sin is being stored in a cup full of this terrible, disgusting, awful drink that you drink and it makes you drunk and you stagger around, reeling in pain. At some point, God is going to give this cup of his wrath to every person who has sinned against him. He will make them drink it in its fullness and experience the horror of his terrible wrath. The cup of God's wrath is so full and so bad that it actually takes all of eternity for sinners to consume. And Jesus drank that entire cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on you and on me. Jesus drank the entirety of that in three Hours. It was so terrible, it was so horrible, it was so unspeakable that God would not even permit people to see it. The sun could not even shine while it was happening. It was the worst moment in the history of the entire world. It was at that moment that Matthew and Mark record that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ had been forsaken by his Father, cast out of the presence of his Father into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For all of eternity, Jesus had experienced inter-Trinitarian community with his father. Jesus was closer to his father than any person has ever been closer to anyone else. And he was cast out into darkness. Up until that moment, Jesus had experienced varying degrees of loneliness. But he could always say in John 16, I am not alone. Because my Father is with me. Now, on the cross, in the darkness of God's wrath, he cannot say that anymore. God is not with me. For the first time in his life, Jesus is alone. For the first time in all of eternity, God is alone. And God the Father turns his loving, glorious face away from his Son and instead chooses to crush him under the immeasurable weight of his righteous wrath. The physical toll that Jesus took on the cross was unbelievable unspeakable, unbearable, the social and relational and emotional toll that Jesus took on the cross was terrible and awful, but the worst part about the cross was the spiritual suffering that Jesus endured as he was abandoned by his father, forsaken by his father, punished as if he was a sinner by his father. John Calvin says, if Christ had merely died a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul also shared in the punishment, then Jesus would have died to be the Redeemer, but the Redeemer of bodies alone. But Jesus did not merely die a bodily death, He paid a far greater price, a far more awful price, in suffering in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. Jesus endured the darkness of God's wrath. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner in our place. Listen to some of these passages that describe this transaction that's happening here. Isaiah 53, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Mark 10, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 9, Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of his people. 1 Peter 2, Jesus bore him he bore our sins in his body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who who knew no sin, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what Jesus went through on the cross. And here's why. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus endures the darkness of the wrath of God so that the curtain of the temple might be torn in two. Matthew and Mark specify that the temple in the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Meaning that it was torn by God himself. God himself tore the temple in the curtain into that The temple curtain was 60 feet high way taller than this room, it was 30 feet wide, and it separated it separated the, the, the rest of the temple where people could go from the most holy place in the innermost room of the temple where God dwelled on earth, no one was allowed in there. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. God creates humanity. And God and humanity dwell together, live together, walk together, experience relationship with one another in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, when humanity sins, God casts Adam and Eve, casts humanity out of the Garden of Eden, effectively saying, you, you can't be with me anymore. My pres- I cannot be in the presence of sin. Sinners cannot be in my presence. They'll be consumed by my righteous wrath, so they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And when they do, Genesis three says that God drove the man out. He drove them east of the Garden of Eden, and then God placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God is so God puts this angel. He he dispenses. He he you know uh, yeah. He tasks an angel with guarding the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. Do not let sinful man in here. They will die. My wrath, my righteous wrath will consume them. The angel's job is to guard the presence of God and keep sinful man away. Sinful man cannot dwell with a holy God. Later, the people of God relocate to Egypt under the the direction of Moses. They're they're, they're kind of set free from slavery in Egypt. They come through the Red Sea. They come to the mountain of Sinai. And God says, Moses, you're the leader. I'm going to make a special dispensation for you. I'm going to make a special, uh, you know, something. You have a special, you have special access into my presence. You and I are going to walk together, dwell together. I'm going to give you my words, give you my laws. But then he says, but... You shall set limits, this is Exodus 19, you shall set limits for the other people all around and say to them, do not go up the mountain. Right? God calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai where he's going to meet with him, but he says, everyone else, don't come up the mountain. Don't even touch the edge of the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Right? Just reiterating, if sinful man comes into the presence of a holy God, he will die. Later, they're traveling. God gives them instructions to make the tabernacle, which is the predecessor for the temple. It's a big tent where they would come to worship God. And he says, and you shall make a veil. You shall make a, a curtain of fine linen, and it shall be made with cherubim stitched on it same cherubim that were guarding the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. They are symbolically stitched into the, the temple curtain, the tabernacle curtain. Make a veil, hang it with clasps, and bring the ark of the testimony within it, and you shall separate from you the holy place from the most holy. So so there's the most holy place where God dwells, kind of um, like the the, the the the, you know, what the Garden of Eden was a prototype for, and then there's everywhere else. And just like there was a cherubim guarding the Garden of Eden, not letting sinful man in into the presence of God, there's cherubim stitched into the veil, the curtain that won't let people into the presence of God in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Same thing would happen later in the permanent temple that would be built in Jerusalem, according to Second Chronicles 3. God dwells in this room. It's holy. It's the most holy place. Sinful man is not allowed in. There's a curtain. There's a barrier. There's a dividing wall that keeps you out. You can't come in to where I am. God is in the garden. Don't go in there. God is on the mountain. Don't go up there. God is in this room, in the tabernacle, in the temple. Don't go in there. And then when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn in two. God is saying, God is saying, you can come in now. You can be in my presence now. Sinners can come into the presence of a holy, righteous God. There's no curtain separating us. There's no cherubim with a flaming sword that's going to kill you. If you get too close, you can come in. You can be with me. All throughout human history, you could not be near me. Now we can be together. You were guilty of sin. I was furious at sin. I was standing ready to destroy any sinner that presumed to come into my presence. But now, Jesus has died on the cross. That changes everything. My wrath has been satisfied. You don't need to fear it anymore. It's been poured out on someone else instead of you. The cup of wrath has been drained. There's nothing left in it for you. You don't need to fear me. You don't need to cower. Uh, You don't need to be afraid of coming into my presence. You don't need to fear my wrath. My wrath has been fully, entirely unchangeably satisfied, propitiated. I cannot get mad at you because all of my anger was exhausted and poured out on Jesus. Before Christ died on the cross, the presence of God meant wrath and judgment and punishment and death. Now that Jesus has died on the cross, the presence of God means life and joy and glory and and pleasure. The the, The curtain in the temple has been torn in two. Sinners can come and be with Jesus. That is why Jesus died on the cross. He was forsaken by his Father, punished by his Father, experienced the outer darkness of the wrath of God so that the curtain could be torn in two, so that we could be welcomed into the glorious presence of God. Ephesians 2 says, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from God. You were on the other side of a, of a temple curtain that was firm and fixed and would never move. You were separated and alienated. You were strangers to the covenant. You had no hope, no no access to God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ because Jesus is our peace. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Right? He has torn the curtain in two, broken down the dividing wall of hostility between God and, and man. He, Jesus has reconciled us to God through the cross and, and put an end to all hostility. And that will never, ever change. The fact that there is no more wrath in God for you can never be changed God's wrath was exhausted on Jesus. He can't get any more for you. It's gone. It's done. You have been welcomed. The, the temple, has been. The, the curtain has been torn. You've been welcomed into the presence of God, and no one can take you out of the presence of God. Romans 8, we read it in our, um, in our call to worship. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall pull us out of the presence of God? Who shall re- Erect that temple curtain to make sure that we cannot go into the presence of God. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That promise in Romans 8 was bought and paid for in full by Jesus at the cross. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Our salvation is as sure as... And as secure as God is faithful, your salvation is as sure and as secure as Christ's death was sufficient. As faithful as God is, as sufficient as Christ's death was, that's how sure and secure your salvation is. Jesus experienced the darkness of the wrath of God so that we could be welcomed into the glorious presence of God in verse 46 and Jesus calls out father into your hands I commit my spirit if there's ever been a moment when anyone would be justified to not trust God To not be faithful to God. If there's ever been a moment when you would expect someone to, for their faith to lapse, it would be this moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross on the tail end of three hours of pitch black darkness, can't even see your hand in front of your face, enduring the terrible wrath of God. Not even 24 hours ago, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his Father, Please take this cup from me. Please don't make me go to the cross. Please find some other way. God said no. And seconds ago, Jesus cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is here having experienced a worse experience than any human has ever experienced if there's ever a moment when a person would turn away and say, that's it, I'm, I'm on my own, God obviously, God has forsaken me, God has abandoned me, it, it's a fool's errand for me to trust God at this point. If there's ever been a moment when anyone would say that, it would be this moment right now with Jesus. But he doesn't. He looks up at his father even though he has less reason to do so than any person who has ever lived, and he trusts his Father, and he entrusts his Spirit into the hands of his Father. There are a lot of people who have done a lot of great things in this world. Acts of heroism, incredible generosity, you know, great acts of sacrifice for others. More often than not, it comes in fits and starts. Someone will do something admirable, but then they'll follow it up with something selfish, right? They'll go, you know, go and defend their country and risk their lives for their fellow citizens. Then they'll come home and get drunk and get into fighting a bar. They'll donate money to build a wing on a children's hospital. Then they'll be rude to their spouse and kids. We have potential to do great things, but it often comes in isolated moments. We can't seem to sustain it. We can't seem to persevere in it. That's exactly what Jesus does. He perseveres in the godly, humble trust of his Father all the way to the end. Even after enduring the terrible darkness of the wrath of God, Jesus still trusts his Father, obeys his Father. He loves his people all the way to the end, sacrifices for them all the way to the end, gives himself up for them all the way to the end. And then then Jesus ends his earthly life in the same way that every believer ends their earthly life. By committing his soul, his spirit, into the sure and secure and immovable and unchangeable hands of his Father. Most days when I wake up, most nights when I go to sleep, I have a decent idea of what's in store for me the next day. I'm going to wake up like I've done thousands of times. The sun is going to rise in the sky like it's done thousands of times. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to play with my kids. I'm going to do things on my to do list. Mo- most days, I'm pretty confident of what's going to happen because it's happened before. And I'm confident of what's going to happen because I have agency to affect change, right? Most days when I wake up, I'm confident of what's going to happen. Because I've seen, it's familiar and because I can do it. Right? I, I'm, I'm a person that can, can affect change in the world that I live in, in my life. Tomorrow is familiar territory where I have agency. Death is the opposite of that. Apart from God's word, none of us have any idea what happens after we die. We are completely and totally in the dark. And none of us have any ability whatsoever to affect any real change in our circumstances after we die. All the money that we've accumulated is worthless. All the power that we've accumulated is useless. We are totally and completely at the whim of, we are at the mercy of forces that are beyond our control. So so you might be confident of what's going to happen tomorrow... Or next week, but you have no idea what's going to happen after you die. Tomorrow, it'll be fine—nothing new, nothing out of the ordinary. But with death, you say, "I have no idea what's coming. I have no—I have no ability to secure my own eternity." Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I. Am at, I am at a loss. I have no ability, no capacity whatsoever to do. To, I have no leverage, no negotiating power. I'm putting myself in your hands. Either you save me, or I am lost forever. There's a musician named Shai Lin who writes a song about the inner monologue of three different people in a hospital wing, the last moments before their death. One verse says, as the, hour, as the hour draws near to take my last breath, I'm not quite sure how much time I have left. I'm walking in the path of all of the struggling believers who have died, and I'm in fear of what awaits me on the other side. The struggling believers who have died, and I'm in fear of what awaits me. The next says, The hour draws near to take my last breath. I'm not quite sure how much time I have left. I'm walking the path of all of the faithful believers who have died, and I'm prepared for what awaits me on the other side. And the last verse says, As the hour draws near to take my last breath, I'm not quite sure how much time I have left. I'm walking the path of all the non-believers who have died and I don't care what awaits me on the other side. You are going to die and as you draw near to your death, whenever it's going to be, you will invariably take One of those postures. You will stand at death's door and say, I don't care what's coming. I don't fear God. I don't even think that God exists. I don't know or care if there's anything in store for me on the other side of this door. My entire existence up until now has been about this life and it's not going to change now. Or you'll say, I'm terrified of what's coming. I think I believe in God, but my life doesn't really seem to indicate that I do. Much of my life has been lived for self and not for God. I believe in heaven, I believe in hell, but I don't know which of them I'm going to, and I am scared. Or you'll say, I am prepared. I love Jesus. I trust Jesus. I've spent my life walking with Jesus among his people. I know that I deserve hell and not heaven, and yet I'm confident I'm going to heaven and not hell because of Jesus and what he has done for me. I'm ready. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a template for what every believer says during the course of their life until they die. And having said that, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. This is the guy who was responsible for crucifying Jesus. He's a Roman soldier, he's a black ops hitman, professional torturer, professional pain inflictor professional, death sentence carrier-outer, of all the people that, that would be inclined to look at Jesus and think that he's weak and think that he's a loser and think that there's nothing in him that, that matters to me at all, it would be the guy who just got finished punishing him and torturing him for hours. Hours. But this man sees Jesus. He sees how Jesus died. He sees how Jesus endured. He sees how Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and persevered all the way to the end and trusted his Father all the way to the end. And he sees that and possibly the least likely man to be converted that day. The least likely convert of everyone at the scene is converted and says Jesus was the real thing. Everything he said was true. He was not a fraud like they claimed. He was not a charlatan or a con man like they claimed. In Matthew and Mark, he doesn't say this man is innocent. He says, surely this man was the son of God. This Roman soldier who doesn't even believe in God now acknowledges the reality of God and acknowledges that Jesus is God's son. I don't care who you are. I don't care how far from God you are. I don't care how unlikely it is that you would ever repent and believe the gospel. When a person comes face to face with Jesus and his perfect life and his sacrificial death for sin in place of sinners, when a person sees that and when the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to understand what they're seeing, they, like this centurion, bow their knee, and acknowledge the sovereignty of Jesus and the sufficiency of his death to save them from their sins. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances, and all the men, all the women, who had followed him from Galilee, they all stood at a distance watching these things. So the centurion, who just got finished killing Jesus, bows his knee and looks to Jesus in faith. And everyone there that just got finished shouting to crucify him, just got finished taunting him and mocking him, scorning him. The spectacle's over, and now they're all mourning. They're beating their breasts. They're sad. They're crying. They're full of regret. It was fun in the moment, but now it's over. We're left empty and sad, hating ourselves for what we've done, wishing we could take it all back. Friends, we are all guilty. We are all complicit in the death of Jesus. We have betrayed him like Judas, denied him like Peter, ignored him like Pilate and Herod, crucified him like this centurion and these these people. And that should compel us, like these people, to grieve and mourn, To look at our sin and be deeply saddened by it. And it should compel us like this centurion to look to Jesus in faith. And to acknowledge him as the perfect, righteous, innocent son of God. It It should compel us to fall at the feet of Jesus and trust in him to save us. And that is what we do when we take communion together. We remember that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus endured the darkness of the wrath of God so that we can be restored and given access into the presence of God. We remember that Jesus' body was broken like a piece of bread. His blood was poured out onto the ground like wine. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian who trusts in Jesus, if you are a part of the people of God, we invite you to celebrate with us. You guys are going to come up and lead us in music when they do. Uh, come forward and receive the elements. You can come forward through, down the, the middle and then back to your seats down the side. As you do, take a moment to confess your sins. Remember the sufficiency of the death of Christ to save you from your sins. We'll have elders serving them on either side of this table. There's also uh, like ones that are individually sealed, if you prefer those. If you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, we would invite you not to take communion but to take Christ and to trust in him like this soldier, right? To to acknowledge that Jesus is the sovereign king and to trust him to save you, to trust in the sufficiency of his death to save you from your sin. He's faithful. He will do it. He will never let you go. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, we acknowledge that we deserve your righteous wrath because of our sin and rebellion. Jesus, we thank you that you endured the wrath of God in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, we look to you and we trust in you to save us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.